Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So before we begin, permit me to turn my back to you. I want to ask the choir for a favor. Is that okay? Thank you for giving me permission, Pinders. They don't know that I am really, really jet-lagged. And so for me right now, it's around 7 p.m., which means I'm going to get sleepy pretty quickly. So, I need to ask a question. Who among you is the one with the most angelic voice? (laughs) I love how Mark didn't point to Sonia. Well done, Mark. Well, well done. You all talk about it, and if you see me falling asleep, you need to select somebody to, with an angelic voice, wake me up so we can get through this message together. Deal? Back to you. It's a little awkward. I don't know if you needed to hear that conversation, but it was good to know that the choir has a really, really high idea of themselves. (laughs) That's that's very beneficial. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler for the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of problems, and by opposing them, to die, to sleep, no more. Many of you recognize those lines as perhaps the most popular soliloquy in all of English literature. But with apologies to William Shakespeare and his Danish prince, I think this morning we ought to consider a more profound and poignant question. Because if you haven't noticed, you're here. Now what? I've been thinking a lot this week about presence about how I engage and enter into these spaces that we create, these spaces that we inhabit, because let's face it, as Christians, we bear both a moral and an ethical responsibility to behave in a way that gives God glory in the places we live and the relationships we benefit from. So perhaps... Perhaps Hamlet ought to ask a different set of questions. Namely, now that I've decided that I be, how do I do that in a way that is both moral and ethical? I've been thinking about presence a lot this week. And as I was doing so, my mind wandered, as it often does, and I remembered it's been 11 years since Linda and I welcomed our first baby into the world. 
And we were right here in the hospital, and I was trying to be the good, caring husband, and so I said, honey, how can I be here for you? Because let's face it, she was going to do the lion's share of the work. So my wife, that is just, she's amazing. She looks at me and she says, well, um, I would really like it if you could do the same thing you did for our wedding. I said, what was that? And she said, well, just show up. (laughs) Just show up. Hold my hand and tell me everything is okay. And as I heard that great gem of wisdom, I realized that this idea that we pass on almost flippantly in our culture is actually true. Showing up is half the battle. I mean, I don't think Linda was expecting that when I showed up, I was going to show up in force because I brought my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, both are brothers, a couple cousins, my mom with a camera. <laughs> That's still a sore subject. And several of you healthcare providers who were wondering why we were having a family reunion in a delivery room. So today we continue and we conclude with our series on remedial. It's been our attempt for these four weeks to take you back to some things that you already know but might have forgotten. If you recall, we began with sin, and then my two colleagues, Pastor Josh and Pastor Chris, did a magnificent job leading us through a study on salvation and Scripture. Today we talk about sanctification. Now, if you're expecting me to deliver a homily that has to do with how you ought to behave in order to become acceptable to God, you're going to be disappointed. Because the premise that we are going to be sharing throughout our time together is that sanctification is what we do for the world. Now, I'm going to unpack that idea in a few moments, but before we do that, we probably ought to go to Scripture to see if that hypothesis bears any merit. So if you have a Bible, you know what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and open it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. And as we give this 30,000-view idea and interaction with the text, we probably ought to recognize that indeed presence means a lot. The reason Paul is writing this excursus to the church in Corinth is because he has been with them. He has done life with them. He has experienced the joys of renewed faith and the disappointments of, shall we say, our failures. Isn't it true, then, that presence deeply impacts the way 
we view ourselves. A few years ago, a museum in southwest Washington, D.C., decided to operate under the, uh, the notion that the people that need beauty and inspiration in, the, in life more than anyone else is the people who have a difficult background. And so they commissioned 20 artists to get together and begin to draw scenes. These beautiful art pieces that had to do with Anacostia, a neighborhood in Washington, perhaps the most dangerous and difficult neighborhood in Washington. Now, they're typically on the news because there has been either a murder or a robbery. It's a place inflamed with tension, but for the briefest of moments, because somebody decided to be present for them, artists began to imagine a new future. And as they constructed this new idea together, they realized that Anacostia didn't need to be known only for being seedy and difficult. It was also the birthplace of Frederick Douglass. I want to share one of the paintings that one of those artists commissioned so that you can get an idea of how powerful presence can be. Don't you love technology? <laughs> We're actually building the excitement. Frederick Douglass and these people, these people that up to that moment had lived lives marred by their inability to fit in, began to view themselves differently because somebody decided to be present for them. And I think there's something germane to human beings that causes us to dwell in these spaces almost intuitively. 1.5 million people saw the creations commissioned for Anacostia. This was the gallery's most popular showing ever. I wonder if you have somebody in your life, somebody that has been present for you, somebody that can look beyond those spaces and those places that, well, let's face it, bring you down. When you look in the mirror, I bet that the first thing that you see, unless you're our wonderful choir, is what's wrong with you. I spent some time in Kenya over the past two weeks, and in the middle of the Maasai Mara, the bush, people were approaching me, saying, are you from Loma Linda? And I was saying, yes. Are you a dentist? And I was saying, no. But you seem so familiar. And then it hit me. They watch Loma Linda University Church. And so I said, no, I'm one of the pastors at the church. And they said, oh, yes, we recognize you. You're way shorter in person. 
Thank you. (laughs) That's human nature, isn't it? To enter into these spaces and focus almost to the exclusion of everything else on the things that are wrong with us. And so here you have Paul at 30,000 feet writing what most scholars believe is his most contentious letter ever. Second Corinthians is a problematic letter written to a community that has begun to mistrust Paul. So deep is the division that Paul has to change his language. If you read 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to the church as a loving father. In 2 Corinthians, he does so as a brother. And the community is so critical of him. There's so many issues that they see wrong with Paul. They've argued that he's promised to visit and hasn't visited. They've called into question the collection for Jerusalem, even to the point where they've accused Paul of mismanaging their funds. But here's the kicker. They have even gone as far as to begin to doubt Paul's theological credentials and his pastoral ability. Which, let's face it, as I read it, made me feel kind of good because if Paul can't pastor a congregation, well, what hope is there for the rest of us? And so we begin descending from this 30,000 view of this contentious letter into the muck and mire that is chapter 5. And the passage that we are going to be lingering over could be structurally divided into three primary parts. The first three verses deal with Paul's attempt at defending his integrity. The second three verses contain an explanation of how the Jesus event has swung Paul's understanding of both himself and his fellow believers. And the last part of the passage has to do with an invitation, a plea for the church at Corinth to join Paul in this amazing ministry that he calls reconciliation. So I've given you already the 30,000-foot view. I've I've spent some time grounding you in what the text is and how it can be divided. Let's now look at what Paul has to say to us for today. And in order to do that, I want to focus primarily on verse 14. But before... I want you to notice how Paul begins this section. My Bible says, since then we know what is to fear the Lord. So notice that most of the times Paul writes, he does so in order to develop an argument that will make you dizzy because it seems like Paul likes to go in circles. He starts by saying, we know the fear of the Lord. And he finishes this passage by inviting people to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. And so lest I forget, 
and I let you out of church this Sabbath without this nugget of wisdom from Paul, let me tell you this, the fear of the Lord, that awe and majesty that we ought to have when we encounter the Creator, that has to be understood through the lens of His reconciling work with humanity. If you can't understand why God wants to be reconciled with you, you're going to have a murky picture of what the fear of God is. So now that I've said that, let's go. Let's delve into verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. And I love the way Paul starts this section. Did I tell you that 2 Corinthians is a contentious letter? This is where you say yes. It's a contentious letter. Paul uses the imperatives in this letter very sparingly. He wants to manage this congregation with kit gloves, and yet in verse 14, he uses the first imperative in this section, and he says, the love of God directs me. It forces me. Everything that is to follow then is grounded on this idea that Paul has encountered a force that is irresistible. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, God's love is irresistible. The love of God compels me. And what does the God of love, this irresistible force, compel Paul to do? Well, verse 14 says... Because we are convinced that one died, and therefore all died. Do you notice? Can you see it? It's right there. There's something off with that sentence, isn't it? Let me read it to you again slowly. Because one died, who died? There's like three people here that are with me. Because one died, all died. Doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, if I'm Paul, this is what I would have written. Because one died, all live. After all, that is what substitutionary atonement tells us, right? It says, the love of God placed him on a cross, and he died in order that we may live but in this particular passage paul says because one died all have died and i think what paul is telling us is that substitution is not sanctification sanctification is participation now, don't get me wrong, substitution is part of the message of the gospel, but in this passage, in this, at this precise moment, Paul is telling them sanctification is something that you participate in. What does this love do? It compels us to realize that sanctification is something we participate in. 
So how do we live sanctified lives? Well, simply stated, the invitation that Paul is making to the church in Corinth is that they may pursue the world. So why do we pursue the world? Why do we go out and engage and be present? Why do we invest ourselves in the marketplace of life? Paul is saying we do so because God pursued us first. We pursue because God pursued us first. What does that look like? What does it look like to relentlessly pursue the the world with this irresistible love? I think about Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa, whenever she would get somebody to come and start serving Their crash course, their orientation was to go to the house of the dying. And in the house of the dying, they would spend time. A novitiate came and began to ask how she was going to do ministry, and Mother Teresa told her, do you see with what gentleness and love The priest holds the host of communion. Go out into the house of the dying and hold people with that same irresistible love. Be present for people. And so she did. And three hours passed, and the young nun returned with a smile from ear to ear on her face, and she said, I have spent the past three hours touching Jesus. Teresa asked why. And the answer came back. A man fell in a pit and was covered with filth. And I spent three hours cleaning him off. And as I did, I felt my hands were touching Jesus. Sanctification is about our participation in the invitation that God makes to go out and pursue relentlessly. And if you can do that, if you can manage to pursue the world relentlessly, guess what? You start seeing the world in a different way. Paul continues this chapter by saying there are two ways to look at the world. He uses these Greek words, sarks and cardio, the flesh and the heart. And he says, once I saw people with the flesh, but now in Jesus I see them with my heart. I have recognized that that world we are called to pursue has inherent value. You see, Paul believed that the act that occurred on Calvary, Paul believed that the cross was so powerful that it heralded a new reality, a new genesis, a new beginning. It was transformative. And so he can say to this church with whom he is having a contentious relationship, I am a new creature in Christ. And what do new creatures do in Paul's mind? They show up. 
Loma Linda University Church, let me tell you this, let me tell it to you clearly. You want to be a saint? Then start by showing up. Saints show up, and they pursue relentlessly. Now, what do they do as they pursue relentlessly? Well, Paul will tell you. Paul says that as you pursue relentlessly, you are invited to share this ministry of reconciliation. You see, for Paul, the ministry is the message, and the message is the ministry, this idea that God has reconciled himself to you. And here's what's really fascinating. God initiates and culminates this act of reconciliation. You just sit there as a bystander, overwhelmed by God's incredible love. You know what else I find really interesting? The language that Paul uses. You see, Paul says that we are a new creature. And the... Tr and the tense he uses that in Greek is the perfect tense. Now, I don't want to bore you, but let me just tell you that perfect in Greek is any event that happened in the past that continues to have ramifications in the present and in the future. So when Paul says, you are a new creation, what he is actually saying is the Jesus event that happened all that time ago continues to reverberate through history. So go out and pursue the world with that message. And then he says that you have been reconciled to God. And the term he uses now for reconciliation is an aorist. It means that it happened in the past and it happened once and it's good. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the whole world has been reconciled. The whole world has been reconciled. Justification is what God does for the world. Sanctification is what we do for the world. We pursue them relentlessly. The problem is, however, that we have, well, we have become so good at showing at showing and comparing how good we are to one another that we have forgotten to simply be there for one another. I want a church that is present and that proclaims a message that is relentless. And when you do that, well, when you do that, there's no limit to what God will do. I'm going to tell you guys a secret. Nobody's watching. 
after all. Did you know I grew up in Loma Linda? Yeah. You grew up in Loma Linda too. Phenomenal. I grew up in Loma Linda and we would pass the church and I would come to church and I would see Bill Loveless and Pastor Doug playing the harmonica. That's how much younger I am than Pastor Doug. And then I'd go across the hall to Randall, and I'd sit through Graham and Maxwell's class. And I think I'm the only 11-year-old that ever sat through class after, after class of Dr. Maxwell. And I never dreamed that God's relentless love would now give me an opportunity to minister in this church that was so foundational for me. But not only that, Chris brought his dentist today. I get to do ministry with my wife every day. And if you haven't seen what true presence is about, what relentless pursuit is about, what it means when the church decides to value substance over style, what it looks like when a church is committed to the eternal instead of the ephemeral. I want you to see how we were present in the lives of people half the world around. Take a look. We're here in Kenya with the Maasai people in Mara West, and we've been welcomed by the Aho family who run the foundation of African Mission Services. We've been doing VBS at some of the schools. And we've been also serving at the women's clinic, having eye clinics for the clients and the people that are coming from around town. Incredible Primary School is found along the Masimara, around the Masimara apartment. And um, the school is a primary school, but we now we have introduced junior secondary school. I decided to join this mission trip because this is something that I've always wanted to do. It's just been so amazing. So much love, kindness, uh, compassion. And we've been also helping them build part of their clinic that is going to be finished hopefully soon here. And their goal is to be able to provide women a safe place to deliver their children, a place where they can come and get help when their children get sick.
thank our friends from the church. We really appreciate them. And when they come as we see them as a blessing because out of their visit, something positive happened to us. I want to thank you. Thank you for those people who, who have contributed for the coming at the Visionary Star School. We, are, we really appreciate and we pray that we God bless you and help them so that they can come here and teach our kids. We're extremely thankful to them for welcoming Loma Linda University Church and our UReach team to their home and for treating us and being such great hosts. I definitely invite you to come and try it out. Not only will you help out and give smiles and touch people's lives, but you'll also make amazing friends. I've made many of them, and I know that together we'll go back home and do more good work. That's your church. Pursuing with relentless love. But you don't have to go to Africa. I mean, please, if you can go, it's going to be a blast. But you don't have to. Gallup just released a poll which stated that America's belief in God is an, as a, at an all-time low. Maybe it's because we haven't been sharing the right message. That we pursue because God pursued us first. That we identify with others because God knew us first. That we love because he loved us first. And that we live for him because he died for us. So I don't want to give you a sermon on sanctification. I want to plead with you. Go out and pursue the world. Let us pray. You pursue us, Father, as the hound chases the hare. You call us back to yourself. And then you invite us to go and share with the whole of the world that you have reconciled with it. So give us courage to leave the building. We pray in your name. Amen. Find more podcasts videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.